On this episode of the Theo Bros Podcast, I welcome William Wolf, who served as a senior official in the Trump administration as a deputy assistant secretary of defense at the Pentagon and a director of legislative affairs at the Department of State. William Wolf, uh, you can find him on Twitter, William underscore E underscore Wolf with an E at the end of that. Find him as a really interesting conversation. We get into Christian nationalism, talk a little bit about Twitter itself, and we play a little pastor or pagan. I think you'll really enjoy that. Let's go. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, William. Thanks for taking time on my like humble little podcast. How long have you been doing it? Uh, like two months, but off and on, I've, I've done different podcasts here and there with people. Um, so I have the, the social media numbers that I need to kind of get it off the ground and get it going. So, um, but I'm not a pro by any means. Yeah. And you're a pastor? Yes. Yep. Princeton Bible Church in Princeton, Illinois. We're kind of a we're a church of about two hundred, um, just like way in the middle of the cornfields. But it's lovely. It's wonderful. Um, it's where I grew up too. It's this, the church that I I attended my whole life. So it's just a really sweet, um, just evidence of discipleship and and life here. So very thankful for that. Speaking of uh, the social media numbers, as somebody who's you know joined, tw- you know I was a pretty I use Twitter as a work tool when I was in DC without an account. It's got some really great features um, that you can use even when you're not um, an, an account user. Uh, but you know, I got on you know uh, the last six months, and it's been quite the experience. But what did you? How long have you been on Twitter, and what did sort of did you do to grow your audience? Okay, well, I've been on it since like 2009, um, and I actually served overseas in the mission field. And so I've used it a lot to kind of um, mobilize uh, people towards tribal missions. And I think just kind of just kind of sharing our story as a family and um, all that God was doing among um, the people that we were working and all of that. I think that um, just kind of grew my um, just kind of being super personal about, you know, I, I used to write a lot um, blog posts and stories and such. So um, I think that certainly helped. And then um, you kind of like, you get into the ebb and flow of like reformed, (laughs) there's no other way to put it, but like reformed controversies and um, just, just things that are things that are popping up that need to be discerned through biblically. And so that kind of became an avenue through which I could kind of sharpen my tools. Um, I I met a lot of people through Mark Driscoll's, you know, fallout, all of that, um, just kind of following along with it. And just, um, it just, I don't know, Twitter just kind of forces you to think through the issues really well. Um, And then, and then even though sometimes it can seem like a hot take, um, 
coming up really coming up with a with a response has been really helpful for us even as a small church in the middle of Princeton because eventually you know issues like critical race theory issues like egalitarianism um like charismania a few years back just kind of hit you know that all that hit the fan when when MacArthur did strange fire in like 2013 just a lot of a lot of things that allow us as pastors to kind of see what's just like over the ridge to kind of prepare and be ready for to be ready to have an answer so just kind of like like I see on your Twitter, you do a really good job. You're doing everything right. Like you're engaging on the issues within your sphere really, really well. Your knowledge work, you know, that's religious liberty and and understanding the government. And you have this really, really unique perspective on the government and the church that a pastor doesn't have. And so your voice is so unique that I just don't see how you don't continue to grow. <laughs> as oh, far as your audience. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been um it's been a sort of you know, one of those things, it's a good example of um formula gaining experience. You often sort of um shoot mm-hmm. off at me at Twitter on Twitter's like, oh hey, you're you're just an MDiv student, like be quiet, like sit and learn for a little bit. And I am just an MDiv student, that's true, but I'm an MDiv student who's uh, has te- you know a decade's worth of experience in government and in public policy, mm-hmm. and who you know chose to come back and go to school full time after working. So I am trying to leverage you know what I know and to help help pastors and help Christians and you know honestly even just you know everyday Americans. I, I keep thinking through this tension, and I know this isn't what this podcast is about, but maybe you even have a thought on it. Where I think that you know of all people, Christians should be speaking sort of plainly stated truths to a, a wide audience. I don't want to just always caveat everything I say with, hey, Christian, dot, dot, dot. Though I do want to speak to Christians, but I also just want to speak to non-Christians and people of, of all faiths. Ultimately, if I could get to know them, I'd love to share the gospel with them. But I'd like to help all people navigate this world we live in with clear truths that you don't have to be a Christian to see and recognize. Yeah, that's the common grace stuff. It just living according to God's word, even for unbelievers, if they're living according to, to God's basic principles, um, their lives are just, you know, just on earth are going to go better. You know, right. if, if they remain married, if they, you know, if, if they don't buy into the transgender junk while, you know, <laughs> they're unregenerate and will face an eternity in hell later, it's still like, <clears throat> yeah, I, I understand your, your, your thinking through that. And what, what bothers me, I think is, and I think you're you're using you haven't used the word yet, but just the nuance of like what we would call and you use this term too, but like Big Eva, where sure. they have so many books to sell, they have they have uh, you know profit margins and all of that that they have to be concerned about that they have to nuance things to death, and that's that's what you know that's really where I cut my teeth on Twitter was watching watching these watching whether it was the gospel coalition or or other organizations like them capitulate to the culture over and over and over again and then turn around and point at me and say you you know you're being unloving you're not loving your neighbor (laughs) like we're like we're the ones that you know like we're the ones that are causing so much strife in this in this world where it's them who have capitulated and um 
who are who are yeah who are really causing the trouble so yeah that you know that gives me an opportunity to use um uh illustration that i i keep coming back to and hopefully for your listeners um will find it useful as well and um because a lot of people are put off by what they what they think is fighting and i can understand that if you walked into a room and saw two people fighting both of them look like they're equally at fault but what you desperately need to have is an understanding of how that fight started because there's a very good chance that there is there's not a moral equivalence there and so if you rewind the tape and you realize that you know two people were sitting in a room and agreeing on things peacefully and then all of a sudden one of them started disagreeing and then getting hostile and you know sort of breaking the agreed upon contract of how we're going to carry ourselves in that room and then even starts attacking you and then you defend yourself and you stand up for those principles you know it looks like both of you are fighting but that's actually it's a lot more deeper than that and that's what i try to help people understand is that you know in this growing young restless and reform movement the resurgence of reform theology of better biblical polity ecclesiology sort of all wrapped into it, we were chugging along. And then all of a sudden after Trayvon Martin and then Michael Brown and other incidences, incidents, um, people that were in the room started incorporating worldly ideologies. And then as other people stood up, you know, it creates a skirmish, but that skirmish is not morally equivalent because one, one party in brought something bad into the room and the other party's trying to keep it out. 100%. I, and I started to notice the 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 junk being brought into the room particularly at mlk 50 you know that was when i was starting to be awakened to this to the liberal theology kind of bubbling its way and finding its way back into evangelicalism when it, awake when, not awoke awake not woke <laughs> <laughs> notice i was really careful with, yeah. with my language there yeah uh seeing that and and seeing so many of these these thought leaders buying into um, this man who, you know, by God's common grace and in his kindness and his providence brought along to, to bring an awareness to uh, true injustice. That's wonderful. But at the same time, he's an unregenerate sinner who, who denied the, uh, denied the Trinity and had all kinds of heretical ideas. And, but they began treating him as if he was a believer. And they, they had centered this entire conference around him. And that's when I started to think, oh, something, something big is happening. I also remember a conference six, seven years back is probably the, one of the Gospel Coalition conferences that they have where they invited some, some unsaved men uh, and then talk about, um, talk about I, I believe the subject was reparations and, and the need for them and, and you know, it, it, I was thinking to myself, why are you bringing unsaved people in to talk to Christians about justice? They have no sense of righteousness. They are, they, you know, Romans 1 is really clear that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So, um, and so that, all these things were, were just kept, they kept piling on. And you're right. This fight had started. We, you know, many, many faithful men like Dr. James White and Sovereign uh, Nations and, and Daryl Harrison, these guys jumped in and really um, helped clarify the issues for us. But then they, they, they had huge targets on their back. 
Well, hey, Justin, let me uh, let me just push back a tad bit with you there, and I think I think you'll agree with me. But let me just try to like clarify your point. I agree with you um, in everything, broad strokes, everything you just said. But you didn't. You said um, uh, bringing in on Christians who have no sense of justice, and I think actually you and I would probably both agree that non Christians. Um, because of common grace, actually can have a sense of justice. And there are things that Christians can learn from non-Christians. But this is this kind of is a big point of contention right now is what do we learn from the world? And the reality is we have the discernment to know when sometimes non-Christians are saying true things that align with God's truth and, you know, God's revelation, whether they're Christians or not. And we can learn from that when it when it's sort of in the warp and woof of how God has created the world with, you know, wisdom, et cetera. And then when they're not. So my, my guess is that these non-Christians they brought in were saying things that were probably contrary to principles of biblical justice. But you would, you would agree that, that non-Christians do have, do under, do understand justice to a certain extent, correct? Yeah, I do. Um, I do. And there, there is there because they are created in the image of God, because, they are in God's world, whether they know it or not. And Christ is king. Um, you know, I, and I would say they do know it, that they're in God's, God's world. Um, but I, I see what you're saying about that. That's, that's true. We can learn from, from unsaved people. Like, you know, we've seen James Lindsay, an atheist, come in and really clarify um, just the wickedness of Marxism. He'd be, he'd be a good example of someone who, who, is, who, is, who is not a believer but certainly can see through um, the injustice of Black Lives Matter and, and social Marxism and all of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another great example, I think, is Tom, someone like Thomas Sowell or Glenn Lowry. Both of those brothers, mm. to my knowledge, aren't Christians, but there's much that Christians can learn from them because by and large, when I listen to them, they're helping expound and explain sort of common sense and, and basic common grace principles of human inner uh, human relationships and interactions. Whereas if you get somebody, you know, what well, pick somebody from the Frankfurt school example, you know, um, Gramsci, et cetera, those guys are not, you know, the, their philosophies are contrary to principles of common grace and wisdom. So Christians can learn from non-Christians. That's not the question at hand with things like CRT. It's what are we learning from non-Christians and is what the non-Christians saying lining up with the general principles of god's truth that's that's excellent william clarifying that for me um i have a question for you i have a few actually a lot um i want to hear mostly from you because you are way smarter listen you joined twitter i've seen you retweeted by eric erickson sean davis from breitbart all kinds of people that i follow that i respect um you just appeared out of nowhere. Like you're just, you've had this meteoric rise. You're, you're some kind of wonderkin. Where'd you come from? Oh man. <laughs> Thanks. That's funny. Um, uh, because I don't take it too seriously and I don't take myself too seriously, <laughs> or at least I try not to. I mean, we, we all struggle with pride, but in, in my better moments, I don't take myself too seriously. Um, well, yeah. Thanks for asking Justin. I spent the last decade working in Washington, DC with my, questions of faith and politics, church and state, good government, wrestling with the tension of we're increasingly living in a country that 
despite its you know rich heritage of Christian roots and values, is abandoning them at light speed for a new secular ethos and religion, and that the people that are being presented to us as options for for governing us aren't necessarily you know um, they're not Billy Graham that's for sure, um, but at the same time understanding how our government works and what policies actually do. Uh, bringing some Augustinian realism into the picture and saying like, well, look, you know, someone like Donald Trump, he might not be, he's definitely not Billy Graham, but his principles are going to provide a better opportunity for human flourishing in our country than someone like Hillary Clinton, which I think that his, his tenure in the White House, um, which I, you know, had the honor and privilege to work uh, as a part of his administration, I think has been proved indisputably true. So wind all that back, where did I come from? Washington, D.C., working 10 years in both our legislative branch. I worked for members of Congress um, in the grassroots advocacy world. I worked for Heritage Action. And that, that gave me a sense of really where the Republican base was at. And that's important because many Christians and pastors, um, even say, say big name pastors, they just don't understand really where the base of conservatives, Republicans, or even say disaffected working class is in America. I mean, just tonight I was having some conversations with people who are lamenting over the fact that we didn't have Marco Rubio as our candidate in 2016. And I was just thinking, brothers, you guys, you just don't understand that he had no appeal for the working class in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania who feel like they've lost their jobs and their opportunities to globalization and illegal immigration. And in 2016, Rubio didn't really have an answer for things like that. So um, legislative branch, grassroots advocacy, giving me a pulse of the disaffection, particularly on the Republican side. I wasn't working in Democrat politics, but I mean, I think if you look at characters like Bernie Sanders, you get the same sense of unease in the working class across America on the left and the right. And then four years in the Trump administration at the State Department, Department of Defense. And that whole time, I, I was so blessed to be part of a, a wonderful, healthy local church, Capitol Hill Baptist. I became a Christian through meeting Mark Dever um, in God's grace towards the end of 2011 and moved there at the beginning of 2012. So, um, and growing in my desire to preach God's word and to disciple and evangelize um, and to you know live as a faithful Christian, but also with an interest in potentially being a pastor. I've thought through it like this, and this was a long stretch and I'll wrap up. Um, I, I completely believe in the importance of good policies and politics in our country and stewarding well what God has given us here in the United States in terms of the political talents. We're not China by God's grace. We're not North Korea. We have freedoms diminishing, but they're still there. We should use them rightly. Uh, it's important to do that. But so I could work happily to help people have good lives here and now. But if the Lord would call me to it, I think I, I would work even even more happily to preach the gospel regularly and call people to have a better, a new eternity. Um, but those two shouldn't be in competition with each other. So if I do end up being um, a pastor one day, I also intend to help keep trying to help people think through uh, faith and politics. Is it okay to love America? <laughs> it depends on who you ask. <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that an amazing question? Now I'm a millennial. Are you a millennial, William? I am. Yeah. I've been taught for years that America is um, just this awful, awful country that has 
um, colonized other nations that has just constantly been at war, stealing resources. I have been taught to hate America, but is it okay for me to love the nation that I'm living in? Absolutely. Of course, it's okay for you to love the country that you live in. It's just critical that you love it rightly. You love it in an appropriate ordering of loves, which Augustine talked about this, about a right order of love. So love America, but love it rightly and love it honestly. Can a Christian be apolitical? I don't think so, because the gospel is a political declaration. You know, the gospel says that this world does not belong to the, you know, the prince of darkness and to the principalities and powers that be and to the rulers who deny the authority of King Jesus. And so when you become a Christian, you do fundamentally, you know, you transfer your allegiance um, eternally and your highest priority to the kingdom, the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is where things start to get tricky, right? You, when you're a Christian, you do not have an option on a whole host of some of the most difficult ethical questions facing us uh, as, as humans. Um, you have to believe that men are men and women are women. You have to believe that all human life is valuable, even if it's in the womb. You have to believe that sex is reserved for a marital union that's permanent, committed, and monogamous and between a man and a woman. Now, these are some of the most hotly contested pol- political questions um, all around the world right now. So if you're a Christian and you're doing it right, you are going to be political. You will. That is absolutely true. And I appreciate your, your answer to that, to that question. You know, every single that I get up in the pulpit, if in, you know, if an unsafe person sat in the pews, they would hear politics. Now I wouldn't be preaching from the constitution. I wouldn't be preaching Trump. I wouldn't be preaching anything, but I certainly would be preaching truth claims. And I've just noticed, and you've, you know, you, you've seen this miles away, but within a lot, certainly within the last two years, I've noticed that, that politics are being shoved into every single detail of life. My kid cannot turn TV on without um, there being uh, some organization for transgender children trying to promote, um, trying to promote that lifestyle. Um, everything about life has become politi- politicized. So I can't help it. I can't help but be, um, be vocal about what God has said. And that, that by necessity means that I have to enter into the political realm. And, and I think you hit on this too, Christ is king. He owns everything, does he not? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so he owns, he owns the political sphere too. And so as, as a believer, my, as a pastor, my job is not to, to, to preach politics from the pulpit, but if I am preaching the truth of God's word, it will certainly lead people to vote a certain way. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in teasing out for myself more in my studies here are what does the Bible teach us, our, our principles, our political principles for all peoples at all times and all situations. So what are the universal requirements of faithful Christian living in whatever society and under whatever government you find yourself under, whether you're in, under the CCP in China, whether you're under you know, a constitutional republic in the United States, whether you're under a constitutional monarchy in uh, Great Britain. 
And some of those things would be the ones I've already mentioned, right? Which is holding fast to anthropological created order realities um, and other things like that. But then there are questions of what is appropriate for us in the current time and place and the context that we're in right now, which is where I think in the United States, there, there are a whole host of things that are critical for Christians to be doing. That My point I'm getting at here is this. I think far too many Christians just kind of sweep everything up into some like so soft sounding universal. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to welcome people. We're not of this world. And, and of course, that's true to a certain extent. But they use it, I think, as a little bit of a mental escape hatch of, uh, to get out of thinking about what do I need to do today in Illinois, in the town that I live in, to love people faithfully? Or how should I vote in this election here and now as a Christian mm-hmm. in this world? One thing I'd like to talk to you about um, tonight, especially, is Christian nationalism. Oh, no. Um, All right. I'm out of here. I'm out. You you write on this, at least at least on Twitter. You you've written extensively about this. Sure. And I, I really want to want to hear your thoughts on it. I'm just going to read some quotes. OK, All right. let me read some quotes. I think you'll enjoy these. OK. okay. Um, what is Christian nationalism? It's a deep emotional attachment to a particular and exclusive culture, a skewed version of history, and a false sense of marked superiority that must and will fade away. Any guesses on who that was? Russell Moore. Close. You are right in the same ballpark, my friend. David French, he wrote that in his Substack. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Discerning the difference between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism. I'm going to read one more. Okay. Um, White people have been the primary, though not exclusive, purveyors of Christian nationalism, partly because they have been great beneficiaries of American national power. That one was Thomas Kidd. That one uh, on the Gospel Coalition. And then one last one. This is from Tim Keller. The dangers of Christian nationalism include A, idolatry of one's American culture, B, looking to the state's political power to enforce Christianity, which is the European mistake, and C, undermining the Christian witness. What say you? Yeah, I think that the the whole Christian nationalism conversation in the United States currently in evangelicalism is a a little bit of a psychological operation, right? I think it's a psyop to a certain extent. I I don't think the CIA is backing it by any means, but um, it started picking up steam in the early 20 teens, but really the gas that fueled the current fire of the conversation of Christian nationalism was Trump's election in 2016 and Trump's open admittance that he understood himself to be, um, you know, a nationalist to a, to a degree. He didn't uh, sort of apologize for that. Um, and so I think that by and large, it's a, it's a conversation that some bad faith actors are driving to essentially outgroup conservative Christians and to punish um, evangelicals for voting for Donald Trump, if that makes sense. Um, I think if you substitute now Keller, French and Kidd, I will 
give I will definitely give them more benefit of the doubt than I will people like Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead, Gorski, um, Andrew Seidel, Jamar Tisby. I think when you're dealing with those people, Kristen Dumay, 100% just replace conservative Christian slash Republican with Christian nationalism, and you'll see who they're really trying to go after. Hmm. So should I be a Christian nationalist? Now, when I first hear that, when I hear it, I, in, in my ears, associate it with white supremacy. Okay. And well, that's and what they least, want you to do. Yeah. I know that's, that's certainly what they want me to do. And, and that's been the case in years past. Um, how do I know if I'm a Christian nationalist? Do you have like a test that I could take? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, let's answer, let's answer some six questions together here, uh, Justin. And so I'm, I'm going to use, I'm going to, if you haven't taken this yet, this is the, this is the, uh, the classic Christian nationalism test from Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead's book, taking America back for God, which is by many people viewed as sort of uh, a key text as we're considering this question. So have you taken this quiz before? No, no. Right. Give it to okay. me. All right, here we go. So I don't know if you have, um, you have something to write with down. If you have something to write with, essentially you want to, you want to score yourself um, but from one to four on how strongly you uh, agree or disagree with these statements. One is disagree and four is agree. Uh, that's how you respond to this. So here we go. Oh, baby. Bring it on. Let's do this. All right. First question. Number one, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. The federal oh. government should declare the United States a Christian nation. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. They don't explain it. What do we mean by Christian nation? And that's, I think, part of the uh, the sleight of hand. I used sleight of hand the other day and somebody corrected me. The sleight of hand on this is it's not exactly clear what they mean by Christian nation, but score yourself on that one. One, disagree. You know, two, three, four, strongly agree, um, you know, from on that scale. And we'll keep going. So if I if I look at our nation right now, I'm going to say our nation is definitely not a Christian nation based on the the abortions, all of that. Like objectively, doesn't look Christian to me. Now, as far as you know, the founders and where they stood on Christ and all of that, they certainly loved the morals of Christianity. I would say. So I'm just going to go with a three. Okay, keep track of your score there. All um, right. Next one. Question number two. The federal government should advocate Christian values. Four. 100%. All right. You're already at seven, my friend. You're well on your way to the gulags. Dude, um, I'm dead meat. All right. <laughs> number three. The federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. Not the now way gotta, the liberal, not the way the liberals would use that. Yeah, because, see, this is really important way to catch that, right? Because this is this is really important. Separation of church and state is is not anywhere found in the Constitution of the United States. The First Amendment it. it says that the federal government shall make no establishment, you know, of religion. They they shall not uh, require there to be a certain exercise. Of religion. In short, the better way to think about it is the First Amendment 
is meant to keep the government from enforcing, uh, you know, one approved religion. It's not in any way meant to stop religion in certain ways from impacting what our federal government does, particularly Christianity. Yeah. Christ over Caesar, not Caesar over Christ. So I'm giving that a one. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, though, right? Because what do they mean by it? But number four, four is the federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. Yes, they should. Okay, so that's a four. Yeah. Okay. Then again, um, again, this is God's created world. This is, you know, we we want the common grace of our Lord to to flood our our beautiful United States. So I'm giving that a four, my friend. I want people to see. I want people to see the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's been a hotly litigated question, right? Because um, I mean, and this is this would be. I'll, I'll put you on this a little bit. So. Um, what we have here in the United States is a system of government in which our government is not endorsing a particular religion as the one true religion. It it doesn't do that. So if then in um, now, again, what do they mean by public spaces? Do they mean a space that is funded by public dollars? You know, so should we have 10 commandments in a courtroom versus should we have a cross, uh, you know, on display somewhere in a public area that was provided for, for by private dollars. You understand the difference there? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would you so, say? Would you say we should put 10 commandments in the courtroom paid for by U S tax dollars? No, I say, no, I don't know, William. I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's, fair, man. that's fair. It's a good question. Yeah. These I mean, are things I've never thought I've never really thought through. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, it's, it's a good question to think through. I mean, I, I lean towards yes, right? Like I, my, my leaning is I actually have no, no problem with that because the Ten Commandments speak to, you know, eternal moral truths that, um, that all people ultimately are subject to, to a certain degree. Um, and, you know, I don't think that has to be seen as United States government in any way conscripting somebody to profess a faith against their conscience. Does that make sense? Yes. And, but, you know, I think people like Perry and other Seidel in particular would say like that is uh, coercive. And I I just don't agree with that. Let's keep going. Question number five. Okay, let's go. Um, The success of the United States is part of God's plan. How would you rank that? One to four. Absolutely. Number four. Sovereignty of God over all things. He raises up kings and he lowers them. He is over all things. Okay. Uh, and then number six, the federal government should allow prayer in public schools. Like public prayer? Like teachers are praying? Like <laughs> yeah, again, required? it's not clear what they mean by that exactly. Like, well, I'm, I'm going to go with four on this one because, my goodness, I want my high schoolers and junior hires to – to be able to to bring their Bibles and to be able to pray. I mean, if <laughs> if the the transgender movement can broadcast their religion um, freely in the public school, I'm not sure why Christians can't. Yeah, that's a great question. So, what do they mean by this? Right? Do they mean that students should be free to meet and pray, or does this mean that a teacher should be free to lead the class in prayer? Which I, then I think raises questions for us. Then 
is do we want, um, would we want Muslims leading their class in a Muslim teacher leading a class in a Muslim prayer before the start of school? Do we want, you know, um, Mormons doing this? Do we want, uh, you know, atheists leading in some sort of atheist prayer? You know what I mean? So yeah. I think what do they mean by that is, is really key. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that I would, I particularly would want just, you know, any random public school teacher leading their class in prayer before class, you know what I mean? But I do <laughs> want, I do want students free to pray in the schools if they would like to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. See, my numbers are going to be way skewed because we don't know yeah. what exactly this test is, is getting at here. Well, they, see, and that's where, you know, their whole book is sort of built on that test to a certain degree. So I've always scored as an ambassador. So, so they break it down between um, rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. And it, I, I, quite frankly, I think you and I would probably both score as ambassadors, most likely, depending on, on what they mean by this. Um, but that, that raises a lot of questions of what exactly do they mean. So um, I will say, though, this is interesting when you work your way through the book further and when you get into the rest of the Christian nationalism conversations, listen to this, listen to this. This is really important. They say our three main arguments this is on page 16. And then this is what they ask. They say, why did so many conservative Christians vote for and continue to support Donald Trump despite his many overt moral failings right there? It's about Trump. It's really about Trump. Question number two, why do so many Americans advocate so vehemently for xenophobic policies such as a border wall with Mexico. Ah, tipping your hand here, Perry and Whitehead. You think a border wall is xenophobic. That is a very political statement. Um, you know, and then so they just kind of keep going on like that. Um, it's, it's a really political thing they're doing. Yeah, so really what they want to do is they want to label any conservative Christian a... Um, I guess a Christian nationalist or a white Christian nationalist. Is that kind of what we're, what we're gleaning here? Yeah, that's right. The movement has, is going from Christian nationalist to white Christian nationalist. Mm -hmm. So taking America back for God, the power worshipers by Catherine Stewart. Um, these books have been about painting um, Bible believing Christians who voted for Donald Trump or continue to believe in ethical um, realities like being opposed to abortion, supporting traditional gender roles, um, supporting things like an American first immigration policy as Christian nationalists. And they're trying to use that phrase because they can get a lot of rhetorical mileage out of it. But the next step is white Christian nationalism. That's already happening. It's happening with the flag and the cross um, by Perry and Gorski. It's happening with Jamar Tisby. It's not enough just to talk about Christian nationalism because quite frankly, <laughs> Um, ironically, their research shows that um, African-Americans are actually, uh, by proportion, support tenets of Christian nationalism more than white Americans do. So next, they're moving to white Christian nationalism. And quite frankly, I think the end trajectory of this is just uh, white nationalists. They just want to call us white nationalists. It's just one big convoluted way to call us all racists. <laughs> yep. And then garner political points and then get get their folks in office um, and also bring us a little bit of shame and embarrassment for our 
you know, our beliefs on, on gender and our beliefs on um, sexuality and all of that. Um, Absolutely. So the argument generally is, and I've, I've read this in several places, William, why not just call this Christian patriotism? Why do you have to, why do you like the, or do you, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just assuming, why do you like the Christian nationalism moniker? Yeah, well, one thing I love to do is to never, um, never cede rhetorical space to political and intellectual opponents, and quite frankly, to people you know who who don't love the Lord and don't like Christians and don't want to see Christians flourish and uh, continue to have the ability to believe what we're commanded to believe by God. So I, I'm not going to give an inch on this. So. When they, when I read this book and I said, "Oh, Christian nationalism is just essentially being a Bible-believing conservative," okay, great, I'll, I'll own that phrase, and I won't let you weaponize that against me. Um, and so, you know, I didn't wake up one morning and think, you know, I'm going to be some sort of advocate for Christian nationalism. But when I uh, started reading these resources and realizing what they're doing, I thought, okay, somebody somewhere needs to at least give an effort at, you know, judo flipping this rhetorical maneuver here. Um, and are, are we gaining ground? I don't know. Um, but I think it's a worthwhile effort, particularly given how they're describing it. Um, now, why Christian nationalism versus Christian patriotism? And I'd say this, uh, Christian patriotism is more of a sentiment, I would say. And it's an appropriate sentiment to have. And we should get into sort of what a Christian's view of America should be more comprehensively. But Christian nationalism speaks more to um, an ordering political ideology or philosophy. And I, I actually really do like that nationalist piece of it. And I think it's important. Um, let me give you a definition here. This is from the Oxford Handbook of the History of Nationalism. And the editor of that handbook just defined it like this. He says, nationalism is the claim that there exists a unique nation that this nation has a special value and therefore right to existence and recognition. And that to secure this right, the nation must possess autonomy, often understood as a sovereign nation state. I think that's an excellent definition of nationalism. That's, that's different than globalism. That's different from imperialism. Essentially, what he's saying there is that nationalism is the idea that there are independent, distinct nations, that they have a special value in and of themselves and a right to exist, and they should have the freedom to, for their own autonomy and their self-government. And that's something that, you know, quite frankly, America hasn't respected that for other nations around the world at various times and places. That's true. And I'd say that was wrong of us. And right now we have supranational globalist, globalist organizations like the United Nations, like the World Economic Forum, et cetera, who aren't respecting that for other nations currently. And that's wrong too. Um, we have people in our government right now who are essentially letting America's borders go unguarded and they're not, they're not fulfilling their most basic responsibilities to the unique identity of our sovereign nation state. So I think that Christians actually should be nationalists if we understand that we would have an ordered love, a sort of um, concentric spheres. We love our family a certain way that we don't love other families. At 1 Timothy 5, 8, if any man does not care for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. We love our own covenanted church members in a different way than we love other church members. We have certain rights and responsibilities to them. We love members of our community, even ways different than we love members of other states. And then we love our own nation, our own citizens that we're all sort of compacted and covenanted with socially here under the Constitution 
differently than we love citizens of other nations. And this is appropriate. I would argue this is biblical is how God intends for us to live. And it's a good way for us to order our lives. So that's kind of where I come down on the nationalism thing is I think it's a useful and even arguably biblical way to understand how we're ordering ourselves as, as nations in this modern world. Um, and it's more than just patriotism, which is, Hey, I, I love my country. I appreciate that. Let me add a couple things to, to what you said. You know, Romans nine, three, Paul writes, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So that there, even Paul admits there's this kinship according to the flesh. He's, he means Jewishness here. And I would also say, you look at, you know, Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, you have the table of nations that, that actually appears before account. You know, why would God do that? You know, Michael Vlock makes the point in his, one of his works, I'm, I'm forgetting the book name right now, um, but he notes like God is showing us very clearly by putting that table of nations first, that nations are good, <laughs> that, that they are a good thing, that yes, they're a result of the Tower of Babel and the scrambling of languages because man refused to spread all, all over the earth, but God intended for there to be nations. And so I think that this, this push for globalism, this push for a really global communism is, is antithetical to God's purposes. And we, we ultimately see that in, the, in the, the kingdom of heaven, where there are multiple cultures, there are multiple nations that come and learn at Jesus's feet, Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11. Yeah, that's, I think those are all helpful, like additional biblical perspective you know i'd say one of the ways i would describe nationalism in our modern era is it's organic i mean it's kind of always has been organic to a certain degree um nations you know as an outworking of societal groups of similar individuals um you know piper uh, there's a sermon piper preached on this a while back and it's been a while since i've listened to it essentially piper was arguing that democracy is um a great form of government now but it would be a terrible form of government in heaven because in heaven it's going to be a monarchy right it's monarchy forever under king jesus there's no democracy in heaven so so that just kind of helps us realize look even things like democracy nationalism constitutional republics or even like a constitutional monarchy here and now there's a a variety of different ways that nations could be governed but I, i do think that nations individually and distinctly right now is the best way for us to organize and govern ourselves as as fallen human beings, because there is no way a global government could do justice for you know eight billion people on the globe in any meaningful way. Um, it, and quite frankly, it's not working well right now as people try to drive us towards that. Well, thank you, William. You've really you've clarified this for me. And I before we t- tie that off, can yeah. I just give my definition of it? Yes, go for it. Okay, great. So I wrote, I wrote a whole paper on this and, and tried hard to define it well. <laughs> um, let me, and, and let me recommend also The Virtues of Nationalism by Yoram Hazani. And um, let, me, let me give you what I mean by it. Because I will say, um, just briefly as we tie this out, um, essentially my argument was this, and that's Christians need to be careful because Christian nationalism can manifest itself in an uh, untheologically grounded providentialism 
where we do mistake sort of the flourishing of our nation in America with God's um, future's will. Obviously, the flourishing of our country so far has been in God's will. But, you know, we can't look out into the future and say God will bless our country, per se. Um, but uh, here's how I define Christian nationalism. I say Christian nationalism to be a biblically informed political ideology with three main features. One, it honors Christ as the one true king and commanded preeminent love of all Christians. So before the nation, Deuteronomy 6, 5, Matthew 22, 37 and 38. Two, it inspires Americans to love with a greater and more committed love and to prioritize the well-being of their nation and fellow neighbor citizens above the good of a general world order and the international global population, Matthew 22:39. And three, it establishes, promotes, advances, or preserves Christian morality and ethics as the preferred core content of a nation's culture, values, traditions, civic life, and legal structures. So that's what I think a good Christian nationalism is. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. And I appreciate that. I actually read those, read, uh, you actually have that up on your Twitter. If yeah, you a while back. If you search William Wolf's uh, Twitter handle, again, at William underscore E underscore Wolf with an E at the end, um, you can actually, you find at least those three um, summed up. And I, I do really, really appreciate that, William, for you uh, just tying up our discussion on Christian nationalism. We're going to switch gears. We're going to play a little game that I just made up that I'm going to call pastor or pagan. Are you ready? <laughs> oh man, this sounds like fun and that could give me in trouble, but I'm, I'm 100% down and ready. Let's go. All right, let's do this. Okay. So I have three quotes from three somewhat prominent people. And you have to guess whether this quote came from a pastor of a church or a pagan. Someone who's clearly unsaved. Ready. Here's quote number one, William. And this comes from our friend Woke Preacher Clips on Twitter. He's a, a good friend. Credit to him. This person says, Even in the darkest times, there are bright lights. And this month, folks, we witnessed one of the brightest that we hope is a metaphor, an indication, a good omen of more bright lights to come, the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. This individual goes on to proclaim this about Ketanji Brown Jackson. This individual says, the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. Pastor or pagan? <laughs> well, I think I know for a fact that it was a pastor who said that, but it sounds like something a pagan would say. That's the point of the game. You got to choose. Okay, well, I'm, I mean, so, uh, okay, a pagan, a pagan would say that. <laughs> You're going pagan, okay. I'm going pagan. All right, this was a pagan, so you got that answer right. This was, okay. actually, this was Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer from, okay. behind the, from behind the pulpit at a New York City megachurch called the Christian Culture Center on Easter Sunday. A.R. Bernard is the pastor there, and incidentally... This is the same church that New York Governor Hakul once stood behind the pulpit and proclaimed, I quote, the vaccine is from God. There are people out there who aren't listening to God and what he wants. I need you to be my apostles and say we owe this to one another. By the way, 
did you see any statements from David French or Russell Moore and company on this dangerous mix of politics and Christianity? Uh, I did not, to the best of my huh. knowledge. And I know that's funny, isn't it? Weird. That's that's Weird. strange. Seems like it only goes one way. So yeah. you're right. You're right. Quote number one is a pagan, and that was Chuck Schumer. All right. Second quote. Are you listening? I'm this listening. is a good one. All right. It's <laughs> going to be great. I got to <clears throat> get myself ready. All right. Every African-American woman, I want you to come up to this altar right now. Make a straight line. Shalalabasho. Hey, Shabashe. Come on, April. Today there's been history made in the United States. Put your politics aside. I know I run the risk of offending some because of politics. Don't look at politics. Today, the Senate confirmed the first African-American U.S. Supreme Court justice in this nation's history. Thank you, Jesus. Clearly, this individual forgot Justice Clarence Thomas. But moving on. This individual goes on to say, Black well, women... And Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall. Black women, you have had a hard time. The Lord showed me that today a glass ceiling was broken over you. That sounds kind of painful. All right, William Wolf, pastor or pagan? Uh, well, I mean, given the context that the pastor said. Is that your final answer? You're a pastor. 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 Hey, pastor. Pastor. Thank you. It's a pagan. It's a pagan. This is actually YouTube prophet Jennifer LeClaire. I don't know if you know anything about her, but she no. is of Charisma News royalty. So back in, in the 2015, 2016, I, I remember correctly, she wrote about the sneaky squid spirit, and um, oh, you should look goodness. that up. It's really bizarre. And so um, this took place at something called the Elijah Company, which is some sort of private gathering for people who believe they're modern-day prophets. Okay, so quote number two is pagan. You got that one incorrect, William. Sorry. Last one. Last one. Here we go. Quote number three. Jesus never said that. What you're referring to is probably John 14, 6. What Jesus was saying is that if you follow my way, my truth, my life, I, it, it, I will lead you to God. You will know what God is like by following my path. He wasn't saying you need to join my religion. If he was, he was inviting you to join Judaism, not Christianity, because Christianity... <laughs> I can't even read this. Because Christianity didn't exist. Jesus was simply inviting people to emulate his path and, and follow his example as a way to connect to their creator, to connect to God. And you can and you can follow Jesus' path by being a part of many different religions or no religion at all. Pastor or pagan? Pagan. Incorrect. Oh, man. You got one out of three. This was a pastor, believe it or not. This is none other than self-proclaimed reverend and TikTok star, Pastor Brandon Robertson. Rolling okay. Stone. Oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Rolling Stone recently said, Robertson is spreading the good word of an inclusive, modern gospel. And right now he leads a church called Metanoia Church. 
which is interesting because metanoia is the Greek word we translate to English as repentance. Right. Um, so that young man, I pray, repents and places his faith in Christ quickly before it's too late. <clears throat> well, you just played your first, the, the first time we've ever done pastor or pagan, William. How do you yeah. feel? Well, I feel confused, Justin, because I, I think I am. Um, there's just so much crazy stuff that's said out there that it's, you know, there's so many crazy things said by pastors that, you know, are the sort of things that would only be said by pagans. <laughs> um, so I think it just speaks to the cultural uh, confusion of, of Christianity. And, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned something and I think it's, it's worth just coming back to you for a second and connecting this to a previous conversation, which is that in all sorts of other ethnic um, settings, context, the black church, there is a strong stream and sense of the mixing of religion and politics. And nobody ever calls that out as quote unquote Christian national. But what's happening, you know, having Chuck Schumer in your church to deliver a message like that, I mean, quite frankly, how is that any different than Robert Jeffress having Donald Trump at his church? And yet everyone lights their hair on fire for Robert Jeffress having Trump at his church. And nobody bats an eye at that church having Chuck Schumer, you know, um, and I just, it speaks to the hypocrisy, it speaks to the unserious nature of the Christian nationalist accusation, because it is, uh, it is an entirely a tool to attack just white people.